0: I'll tell you why they're doing what they're doing. Of course, you know this. It's the same thing that motivates us. We believe this crucified one did not remain in the grave. We believe he rose from the dead. Of course, the greatest evidence is the change he's wrought in each of our individual lives. We've called upon him and he has come into us and now we're persuaded. We don't need any other evidence. We're persuaded that Jesus is alive and well because we can't explain the transformation of our lives in any other way but that Jesus has taken up his abode in us. In order for him to be raised from death he had to die first. And We've been reading about the preliminaries to the crucifixion over the last few weeks and will continue tonight. Jesus was mocked. Can you imagine? He who is king above all kings was made fun of by the people whom he created. He experienced great humiliation, and he was beaten rather severely. In fact, he was whipped. It was quite degrading, not to mention painful. And after all this, he was made to carry his own cross. Think about it to a place of crucifixion. It was called Golgotha, or the place of the skull. It exists even today. It's a real place. We're not reading mythology. This is a historical record of what happened to Jesus. He went to the place of crucifixion, and there he was being crucified. He was dying, you know. He was being impaled on a cross. And in verse 24 of John 19, we looked at it last week, Verse 24 of John 19, we read this phrase, it's important. This was to fulfill scripture. I mean at the very time when it looked like sovereign God was out of control. At the time when it looked like transcendent deity had lost his grip on the universe. At that very time when evil outrage and contempt for his own son was prevailing. At that very time, oh no. God was fully in control. The Jewish religious leaders and the Roman soldiers thought they were making decisions, thought that they were in the power place, but they were not. Everything they did was in fulfillment of Scripture. They're not absolved of responsibility, and yet God ordained that the very things they did were in fulfillment of very, very specific Prediction in God's word. You know what's ironic? The Jewish religious leaders and the Roman soldiers in the course of doing what they were doing had no idea that what they were doing is to prove to us the reliability of Scripture. Everything they did was in fulfillment thereof. They didn't realize it, and so we read the phrase, this was to fulfill Scripture. Tonight we'll begin... More specifically, in verse 25 of chapter 19 of John's gospel, where it says, therefore... Well, that's an interesting way to start a chapter. It obligates you to back up, doesn't it, that word? You've heard it said. You have to ask the question, what is the therefore there for? That obligates you to back up just to the uh, previous verse, verse 24. Again, it said, this was to fulfill scripture. Therefore... The soldiers did these things. They thought they were operating freely and independently of sovereign deity, but they were not, if you will. They were playing right into his hands so as to persuade us, you and I, today, that we could have confidence in the word of God. All this took place that scripture might be fulfilled. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. But I want you to notice something now. Again, in the midst of all this cruelty and contempt, in the midst of all this injustice, there's kind of a bright light in the text. There was a small group of faithful ones there at the foot of the cross while the Lord was being murdered. They were there at great personal risk, and they did so because they loved him. And love for Jesus moves us to make the kinds of sacrifices we would not ordinarily make. And so we read, but they were standing by the cross of Jesus, his mother. Think about it just for a second, would you please? There are some here I know who have been painfully preceded in death by a child. It's not something any of us would expect nor wish for. And for those of us who haven't experienced it, we never could fully relate to the experience of ones who have. Mary is one who has. There she stands at the foot of the cross, watching her firstborn son perish, die, slowly, right before her. It's his mother, Mary. Oh, she had been blessed, of course to be the one who would give birth to the very Son of God. In fact, earlier on, an angel appeared to her and announced, Mary, you've been chosen by Almighty God to carry his Son in your womb. Mary was visited by Magi from a different place, and they brought to her gifts to celebrate the birth of this special one. You know about this. They brought gold and frankincense and myrrh right to her door. And then eight days later... There was Mary and Joseph, the legal foster father of Jesus, the Son of God. The two of them, eight days after the birth of this special child, in keeping with Jewish custom, they were Jewish, you know. They brought him to the temple in order for him to be circumcised. That's what happened. And while there, they ran into someone named Shimon, or Simeon, And Simeon, this older man, pronounced the prophecy uh, over them at the time, and by God's grace, it's recorded, preserved for us down to this very day, 2,000 years later. We can read it. Here it is in Luke chapter 2, verses 34-35. And Shimon, Simeon, blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, the Lord's mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And then he said, and the sword will pierce even your own soul. I don't know to what extent Mary could comprehend that puzzling statement. But now, some 30 plus years later, she understood full well what Simeon meant when he said a sword will pierce even your own soul, there she stood looking up to her firstborn son as he was dying. It was a process, the crucifixion, you know. As he was in the process of dying and gasping and soon to utter his last breath right before Mary. She's one woman at the cross. And now here's a second, according to the text, his mother's sister What we know from other gospel accounts, her name was Salome, and she, you might be surprised to know, was the mother of James and John. They were called the Sons of Thunder. They were rough characters, but they changed. She was the mother of James and John, the very John whose story we've been reading about for a long time now. John is the son of this particular lady, and... She's there at the cross. Well, there's a third woman also. Look, her name is Mary, the wife of Clopas. She was the mother of Yaakov, Jacob, otherwise known as James, the person who wrote the letter, the book of James. He later became, James did, one of this Jesus' most devoted apostles. And then there's a fourth woman there. And her name is Mary Magdalene. Have you heard of her? Luke chapter 8 tells us she was demonized. I hope you don't worship demons, but I hope you believe they exist. I mean, they do. The very book that tells us about angels tells us about demons. It's a package deal. You can't believe bits and pieces of the Bible. Somehow she came to be under the influence of multiple demons. They were cast out of her. Do you know popular opinion of Mary Magdalene is that she was a prostitute? I would like to challenge you to show me one verse of scripture that supports that. It's just one of those things that somehow has become the traditional point of view in our churches. And yet, I challenge you to find me any biblical substantiation for it. Folks, there's no biblical evidence that she was a prostitute at all. Oh yes, a needy woman, but not a prostitute. You want to know what else is a theory that's going around? Particularly in this horrific book called The Da Vinci Code. It says that Mary married Jesus. Folks, you can read what you want. It's a free country. But why do you want to read certain things that you do? When I want to know about truth, particularly about the Lord Jesus, I'm not reading a fictional account called The Da Vinci Code. I have at least four Gospels to tell me, and many other books of the Bible, to tell me about the Lord Jesus. There's no evidence, not one bit of scriptural evidence, pointing to the fact that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute, nor that she was married to the Lord Jesus. Do you mind if I say that's blasphemy? And yet I'll bet many of you have read The Da Vinci Code. Don't be doing stuff like that. Are you so bored with Scripture? When I get tired of Scripture, I'll read something else. I mean, folks, this is stimulating. This is the Word of God. This can change our lives. The Da Vinci Code can only fill us with deceptive thinking. Well, why is she called Mary Magdalene? Is Magdalene her last name? I used to think that. No. It means she's from a place called Magdala. She's Mary from Magdala. Where's that? It's on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee. You can go there today. I've been there. They've excavated Magdala. It's fascinating. They've uncovered a synagogue there. Undoubtedly, it's one in which the Lord himself attended. So she's Mary from Magdala. She's one of the four. There's four women there. While all this is happening to the Lord Jesus, there were three Marys and a Salome. Three Marys? Yeah, Mary was a very common name in that day, but it wasn't Mary. It was Miriam or Miriam. Where did we get Mary? Well, I've told you this before, and I'm going to tell you again. There was a time... When it was thought the Bible is too Jewish, and so translators decided to retranslate Miriam to Mary. That's how it happened. They wanted to de judaize the Scriptures. Well, then you're going to have to argue with the Jewish Jesus. He was very Jewish. This lady, their name is Miriam. Why did so many? Why were so many? ladies named Miriam, because that's the name of Moses' sister, as you remember. She was highly thought of, and so a lot of parents wanted their daughters to be named Miriam after Moses' sister. So you have four women standing quite courageously here at the foot of the cross, four women, and one lone man. His name is Yochanan, or John. It's the very John who's Gospel account we've been poring over for the last years now, actually. John was an eyewitness to all of this, and he's recording it for us. So four women, women, one man, Where are the other men? Well, it was quite dangerous to be associated with a criminal convicted and condemned by Rome, and I suppose the other. Followers of the Lord Jesus didn't want to take a risk, and so they were not there. But the women, the women were there. In fact, they were the last to leave the cross, and women were also at the place where the Lord was buried, weren't they? They came prepared to anoint his very body with spices. You know, in that day, there was much women could not do. Did you know women could not really credibly testify before the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish government? If a woman wanted to testify, offer defense on behalf of this Yeshua, this Jesus, she would have no permission nor credibility in doing so. A woman in that particular day could not go before Pontius Pilate, the Roman leader, and plead on the Lord's behalf. A woman could not a woman would not have the strength of course to go against the crazed crowd calling for him to be crucified women could not overpower these tough roman guards i'm telling you in that day there was much a woman could not do but there was much women who loved jesus could do and that they did What they could do is follow the Lord Jesus. No one could keep them from doing it, and they did. What they could do is to honor him. Nobody could keep them from doing that, and they did. What they could do is to worship him. Nobody could keep them from doing so, and that they did. I bring it up because even today in our day, there are limitations sadly placed upon some, even here, based on gender, based on skin color, based even on age. There are certain unjust limitations placed upon some of us with regard to what we could do. And those are injustices which must be confronted. But I hope, if you're in one of those categories, I hope you don't allow yourself to get so consumed and preoccupied with what you can't do that you're kept from doing what you can do. Here's what you can do. You can follow the Lord Jesus. Nobody can keep you from doing that in your heart. Here's what you can do. You can honor the Lord Jesus. There's no legislation, no prejudice, nor discrimination can impede your interest in honoring him. You can worship him. Nobody can keep you from doing that in your heart. Well, here's what happened now in verse 26. When Jesus, therefore, saw if you can imagine it, saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. What a poignant moment, if you can let your mind take you back to it, visualize it. Joseph at this point was probably deceased. That means Mary was a widow She was a widow at this time. Her son, Jesus, is the one who had cared for her, but he was dying in front of her very eyes right now. But he had brothers and sisters, but they were not the best caregivers at this point because not a one of them yet was a believer. They didn't believe that their brother, Yeshua, was anything more than that. So who then will care for Miriam. This was the Lord's concern, and I'm rather overwhelmed by this. You ought to be as well. He's dying. He's naked. He's been scourged. He's bleeding from his forehead. A crown of thorns had been impaled upon him. He's been whipped. Maybe ribbons of skin characterize his back. He's trying to provide himself with some relief from the old rugged cross. So he's trying to lift himself off it. And in the process of doing so, he's probably reopening the wounds on his back. It's hard for him to breathe now. He's uttered these words from the cross, but it couldn't have come easily. Soon he will die a death of asphyxiation, you see. And while there, he has deep concern for one whom he loved. He was concerned about her welfare. You've gotten colds and flus and minor afflictions like that, and at that time, nobody wants to be around you, do they? You're irritable and preoccupied. So am I with our ailment, but not this Jesus. Somehow, even at this extremity of need, he was able to look down and be concerned about the well-being of the well-being of Mary. Who will care for her? She's a widow. Widows couldn't provide for themselves in that day. She could not work. It wasn't permitted. She could not seek an education. That too was quite limited. What would, there's no social service system, there's no survivor's benefits, social security, there's nothing like that at that particular time, and so he was concerned, deeply concerned about his widowed mother, and therefore, he referred to the one man who was there, he said of him, he's the disciple whom I love, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Do you know what his name is, that disciple? It's John, but it doesn't say it, does it? Do you know nowhere in John's gospel, there's 21 chapters, does he ever refer to himself by name? I think that's called meekness. Even John himself said in John chapter 3, verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's what he said. And so he doesn't even mention his name. He's recording this, but, oh, I bet he treasured this. You know who I am? I'm I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so the Lord refers to him. Folks, Mary is to be respected. My heavens. Almighty God chose her to bear the Messiah of the world. She was just a young teenager at the time. She went through so much. She is to be respected but not worshipped. Mm. Mary is not a supernatural being. Mary is not to be prayed to nor through. We also have no biblical basis for that. I know there are faith groups who do. I mean no offense. I just want to teach the Bible. There's no basis for that. Can you see the humanness of Mary here? She is a widow in distress and needs to be cared for. You know what Mary would scream out to us about now if she could get through to us? She would say, do not dare cast your burdens on me. I have been burdened. Cast your burdens on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what she would Say, and so the Lord said to her, Woman, behold your son. Some criticize Jesus here for referring to his mother this way. Woman, yeah, but they don't get it. The connotation of the term in that day was not a disrespectful one, it was an endearing one. Woman, he meant no disrespect, but why didn't he say mother? I'll tell you why. As he had done before, still he does it again. He has to persuade Mary that she has to accept him and recognize him in the same way everyone else does as her personal Savior and Lord. And So at this point, he moves past the temporary mother-son relationship and reminds her Referring to his woman, she must acknowledge him to be the son of God. Now verse 27, then he said to the disciple, John, behold your mother. He points her to John, now he points John to her. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. That's what it said. Once again, the Lord's brothers and sisters, they weren't there. They were in Galilee. They were in the north. And not only that, they weren't geographically separated only. They were spiritually separated. They would not be good caregivers for Mary. And therefore, since they weren't believers, oh, they will come to be believers, you know when? After the resurrection. Good night, that makes a difference in people's lives. But at this point, they didn't believe in him, and so the Lord couldn't entrust Mary to their care, and therefore he did to John. You know what I concluded from this? Sometimes, sadly, sometimes, right or wrong, the church family can be more supportive than one's biological family. It's hurtful at times. But thank God for the church family. I remember when I accepted Jesus as my Savior, I had certain family members, you know what they did? They had a mock funeral for me and for my mother, who also accepted the Lord. They were coached by certain rabbis. They said, you must consider those traitors as if they are dead to you. And they were led in having a funeral as if we were dead. You know what that feels like? It's not good. It's a very hurtful feeling. But it wasn't overwhelmingly so because I had a church family. And as much as I loved my family by blood, I value my family through Jesus' blood even more. There's trouble in the local church. Whenever you put a bunch like us together, there's going to be challenges, but I don't know a better deal than to be part of a local church like this one. I visited one of our members in a hospital bed today. She couldn't really speak too much, but she said, I'm so grateful for my church family. Why I was visited by this one and that one, and I was called by this one and that. It was just rather amazing. To me. So in this case, Mary's well-being was left not to her own children, but to John, a brother by faith. So as we kind of draw to a close, I really want to emphasize a certain point. It's the overwhelming goodness, compassion, and faithfulness of Jesus Christ. I know we speak about that, but I really want to emphasize it Here, You see, even as he was dying, bearing the sin of ones like you and I who don't deserve it, even as he was experiencing the outpouring of the Father's wrath for our sin, even then he selflessly was caring for those whom he loved on one occasion. It applies to us, because on one occasion, remember he said, who's my mother and brothers and sisters? These who believe, you see. And so when I think about the Lord's love emanating from the cross, it just makes me feel so tickled, safe, secure. I hope it does the same to you. We've been considering here the words of John. Would you allow me to share with you the words of Jeremiah? The words of Jeremiah, these that I'll share with you, were written some 600 years before the words of John. And in a book called Lamentations, what a non-inviting title. But in a book called Lamentations, John said something quite overwhelming. It was a terrible time for Jeremiah and his people. You talk about instability and upheaval, Israel was besieged. The beloved capital, Jerusalem, was set ablaze. People were being starved, and then others carried off into enslavement. And in this context, Jeremiah and others, of course, were looking for hope and for help. And Jeremiah found it and penned it, the hope he had, in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. Listen to it. The Lord's loving-kindnesses indeed never cease. Do you think that's a typo, loving-kindnesses? No, that's literal. The Lord's loves, plural, on purpose. It's not singular, it's manifold. The Lord's loving-kindnesses indeed never cease. It is the Lord's loves Jeremiah is talking about, and it comes from this really magnificent Hebrew word. Listen to it chesed. Chesed. It's a magnificent word. It means the kind of love and faithfulness that is part and parcel of a covenant relationship. It would be likened to that of a husband and wife as they exchanged their covenant vows. It is the Lord Jesus who is our heavenly husband saying to us, his bride, my loves are manifold with regard to you. I have a chesed love for you. People sin. God's people sin. Israel sin. That's what brought upon the devastation. Jeremiah was lamenting and yet Based on a covenant of love with Almighty God, he makes it clear, I'll not forsake you. In fact, not only do the Lord's loves for his own never cease, but his compassions never fail. Can you see again? The word compassions is pluralized. So what you have here are loves and compassions. You have here, we can call it the plural of intensity. You can read about the intensity of Israel's great sin, but it's not nearly as intense as the manifold loves and compassions of God. Another way of saying it is where sin abounds, grace superabounds, you see? This word in Hebrew is rachamim, compassions. It's a beautiful word. It describes the tender love of a mother for a child, even a rebellious and wayward child. And God the Father takes on the feminine role here and says, I love you with a mothering love. And no mother in her right mind can ever let her child go. That's the love this God has for us. This is a love that's manifested from the cross. In fact, God's compassions, well, they are new every morning. You belong to Jesus, I take it. But have you ever wondered if you could push God so far that he would finally abandon you forever? The answer is no, because God's supply of loves and compassions is unlimited. In fact, His loves and compassions are new every morning. So since this is true, every day for each of us is a fresh start. It's a new day. So perhaps you and I have failed God the day before. Nonetheless, since God's loves and compassions never cease, we can continue on with him each new day. His love, in other words, is as dependable as the scheduled appearances of the sun and moon. They mark our days just as sure and repetitive are they. That's how sure are the loves and compassions of all God. Of course, it was manifest most from the cross when Jesus uttered. He could hardly even speak with almost literally his last breath when he uttered words of concern, you see. His loves and compassions will always be there for you and I. And why? Is it because of you or I? No, on the contrary. Not at all. It's because he is faithful. Jeremiah goes on to state this. Great is your faithfulness. So as a Christian, you and I may fail. We will fail to do what God would have us do and That means you and I may sin. We do sin. And he may, God, may discipline us even severely just as he did Israel in the book of Lamentations. Yet even in this is a manifestation of his unceasing love for great is his faithfulness. Now this final Hebrew word, faithfulness, is the word emunah, from which we get the word amen. When we pray and amen it, we're essentially saying this is most certainly true. This is reliable. This is certain of being accomplished. Amen and amen. God is essentially saying, I'm the great amen. You can count on me. I'm faithful and reliable. You're not. I am. I will never let you go. Do you know him personally? The Jesus who looked down upon Mary from the cross with thoughts of love and concern is the same Jesus who looks down from heaven upon you now. And if he, at an extremity of need, was prepared to meet her needs, how much more can he meet our needs now? But he's resurrected. He's off of the cross. He's resurrected. He's empowered. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. How much more, therefore, could this Jesus meet our needs. How much more does he have concern for us even today? I tell you folks, great is his faithfulness. John Mark, could you come up here and join me and let me ramble just a little bit. Make your way up, brother. Great is thy faithfulness, our words of a great hymn taken from this very statement in Lamentations. They were written, John Mark, 2600 years ago and they were put into a hymn. You know about it. And the hymn was first sung at the Billy Graham Crusade in England in 1954. "Greatest Life Thy Faithfulness is a great hymn. It was penned by a man named Thomas Chisholm, a Kentucky ordinary person. He had no, no formal education, and Thomas Chisholm was so affected by the faithfulness of God, he penned this marvelous, marvelous hymn. And folks, uh, the words are magnificent. Great is thy faithfulness. O God, my has to be personal father. There's no shadow of turning with thee. That means as he was with Mary, so he is towards us today. Thou changest not. That's the point. Everything else does, but not the steady and unceasing loves and compassions of God. Thou changest not thy compassions. They fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Folks, we've got to sing this, not for entertainment. It's a message that can give us the will to go on, turn from our sin, knowing I can have a fresh supply of your loves and compassion. At your extremity of need, you spoke it from the cross. I accept it, and I will go on with my head up and shoulders back, repenting of sin being an unworthy recipient of your loves and compassion, but a willing recipient thereof. I'd like for us to sing this. So could you stand to your feet, but because I'd like for us to really sing it well. Wonderful, John Mark is going to lead us here.
1: Please, brother. Let's sing together. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me.